Hi, I'm Paul, and this is our Connect Sessions, episode number 11. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Everybody have a good New Year? Yes. Yeah. Amelia, you spent the holidays in Denmark, in Copenhagen. How was that? I did. I celebrated my New Year's nine hours before everyone on the West Coast, um, and, then, <laughs> and then promptly fell asleep. It was great. It was a great trip. I spent almost the entirety of it in Western Denmark, in um, Jutland, which is not the same landscape as you would find in Copenhagen, a completely different, all, entirely provincial, basically. I learned some fun factoids about Denmark, like over 60% of the land is used for agriculture. It's a pretty tiny country to begin with, so you don't leave so much space for urban centers. And in a country whose entire population is half of that of LA, you kind of get some different different feelings of what a big city is. But it was beautiful, beautiful landscape, great instances of stormy weather, which to me is really exotic being from Southern California. <laughs> so, and temperature is not really getting beneath zero or beneath freezing. It's pretty amazing, creates this like temperate zone, being constantly surrounded by ocean. Denmark is so small that you, it doesn't really get that cold and it doesn't snow heavily. It'll just be blustery and rainy, but nothing too crazy. So saw some deer, saw some provincial, <laughs> saw, saw some churches built in like the 13th century. Wow. Stuff like that. It was great. And Paul, I understand you stayed at home. You had a good family holiday. Yeah. Yeah. We stayed at home throughout the holidays. We had a lot of family come and visit. Yeah. I guess one of the highlights was... I mean, when you have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, the entire holidays are kind of a, a highlight. It's it's pretty it's pretty fun. It's fun to have. Uh, it's fun ages. But watching the Rose Parade, which is not something I usually really like, it was fun. It was fun uh, watching and having the kids watch in awe as, as the stealth bomber was flying across. And then thirty seconds later, we heard our house was like literally shaking, and we go outside, and it was right above our house. <laughs> So that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, we did a 45-minute drive up into the mountains and actually got to play with snow and have a snowball fight and go sledding Great. and stuff, which That's is awesome. it's a pretty amazing thing that you can do in L.A., which not too many people know. Couldn't do that in Denmark. Couldn't have a snowball fight. It wasn't yeah. snow. No. See, you got to stay in L.A. if you want yeah. to play in the snow. I did get to eat every part of the pig. That was the good part. That was the, oh. That's the offset. That's... <laughs> Even the head. That was great. Oh. <laughs> head cheese. I grew up on that stuff. Oh, yeah. My Hungarian grandfather. Oh, it was the best. I'm sure this is really interesting to Ken. Yeah. The vegan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ken. Sorry. There's a mute button if you want. Yeah, I'll describe. I can describe it in excruciating detail, and you'll just come back in like three minutes, and we'll be good. Yeah. Well. <laughs> How was your holiday, Ken? How was your New Year's and such? Um, it was pretty quiet. I've been working at this firm for uh, two months now. I've been steadily working on a couple of projects, so that's been going pretty well. Um, listening to a lot of podcasts, watching, just binge watching the Marin series on uh, Netflix. So yeah. Tis the season for binge watching. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for binge it is. watching, absolutely. And I, you know, I was listening to a podcast today, and I thought it was great because first, I really liked the designer. Uh, it was uh, the KCRW Francis Anderton's podcast? Yeah, yeah. And she had Simon. Was it Simon Doonan on? Do you know who he is? Mm-mm, no. no, he's the designer for Barney's. I think he does a lot of the uh, really crazy storefront displays. Oh, cool. And he just had this great line. So I I wrote it down quickly and I just wanted to say it. He said he called architects are the new comedians. Oh, gosh. (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you know, it's funny because the context was that he was talking about how these architects design these buildings that 
at the end of the day, the guy who washes the window can't wash the window correct. So he said you should start backwards and figure out what is the what is the range of ability that a guy can wash the window and start back from that point and work your way backwards. And I just thought, I'm like, you know, he was taking a poke at my favorite uh, architect at the moment, Kyle Trava. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think he was poking at Zaha and Gary. And so I think, um, you know, it was, it was kind of in that context, looking at what's probably happening in New York City and the complaints about of people uh, regarding Kyle Trava's magnificent train station in downtown Manhattan. <laughs> So when he says that architects are the new comedian, is that because everyone's laughing at them or it's because they're being funny? No, I think it's I think it's probably having to do with they create these absurdities where the simple things are unmanageable because they create these things that are kind of solipsistic and kind of expressions of their own vanity. And the windows can't get washed because there's no way of getting into that space or, you know, maybe they can't get the window hardware or, you know, the tie offs or something along those lines. Just the mundane things get lost because they're just expressing themselves in a very loud and boisterous way and then with no regard to anyone else. I think that's kind of what I was getting from that conversation. But, you know, it was, take a listen. Yeah. Uh, so I have two responses to that, but I'll only say one of them because um, I'll say the optimistic one, which is I wanted to point out that Shop's project, is it the Mulberry Street project? They based the angle of the window surrounds on the angle of repose of a pigeon. And I believe a pigeon needs at least, what is it, 39 degrees or something. And beyond that, they can't repose. And so that way they could ensure that pigeons ended up not, you know, living for a long time on the windowsills of their building. So, <laughs> so they took into account mm. one of the users and you know, yeah. they, they uh, adjusted for that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to disabuse them of it. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they didn't basically said they wouldn't have, you know, piles of pigeon poop ending up on all the windowsills. And that's the only thing I'll say. I'll, I'll, I'll make a comment in the, uh, <laughs> when we post the podcast about my other feelings about it. Cryptic, Donna, very cryptic. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a nice holiday also, quiet Christmas, New Year's, we went up to Traverse City and I actually have something, an important, well, it's not that important, but I do have some news, which is that my husband grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, and um, we have long been going up there to a small lake called Rennie Lake, where his uncle still lives. And just at the very end of December, we were able to close on a lot on Rennie Lake that is empty. And I'm going for the first time in my career, design something from the ground up, nice. which will be a vacation slash rental property on the lake. Way to go. That's awesome. Nice. Congratulations. Very awesome. Yeah, it's going to be very cool, but I am extremely nervous because this is really the first time I've taken on something this big. And you know, it's it's a dream house. I think everyone, even clients who have their dream house designs in mind, it becomes very big in their mind that it's something that everything has to be exactly perfect. So I'm a little stressed about it, but overall I'm really excited. So I'll be up in the frozen north over the next couple of years getting this house built. That is awesome. Make sure that the uh, community isn't going to uh, create a lawsuit like they did in... Uh... <laughs> well, so we had two lots to choose from, and one of the lots is in a subdivision where there are co design covenants that the building must maintain a rustic exterior. And I just <gasps> said, okay, no, screw that. I'm not buying that lot. So we bought the one that has no covenants. <laughs> um, nice. Good choice. Yeah. So that's uh, that's my exciting news that I'm glad it worked out. And um, it meant we spent New Year's Eve in Michigan feeling like we are Michiganders. We're Michigan Michigan property owners. So I am now a Michigander, but I'm staying in Indianapolis. Well, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a retreat for us. We're not leaving our house. 
here. Well, well that congratulations. Is so cool. Yeah. Very exciting. You know, I'll put up progress posts and whatnot as we go through it. Please do. Yeah. We've got yeah. A, a work status updates part of Arcanet. Exactly. That you can uh, made just for that purpose. Exactly. So we've got an exciting show today. We do. Yeah. We're here with, uh, we've got Mitch McEwen, principal of McEwen Studio, founder of Superfront Gallery in uh, in Brooklyn. Superfront also had a, a presence in LA for a little while back in 2011, 2012. And she's also the author of Another Architecture, one of the uh, one of the coolest blogs in our blog section on Arconnect. So that's really exciting. We also will have Brian Newman, our lawyer, legal correspondent, I guess I should say, back this week. And this week we're going to be talking about different ways to resolve legal disputes. So ranging from, you know, casual phone calls all the way up to Supreme Court hearings. And so, yeah, it's uh, important stuff for us. It is. It is. And an area that, yeah, we really do need help in. I'm so excited about Brian being here. I know. He's our he's our legal guardian angel. <laughs> exactly. So are you guys ready to talk to Mitch? Yeah, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So we're here with Mitch McEwen, urban designer, principal of McEwen Studio, partner at An Office, founder of Superfront Gallery, and a favorite among our bloggers at Arconnect. How's it going, Mitch? It's going great. How are you doing? Pretty good. Good. Great to have you here. You do a lot of stuff. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Just, I, I'm, I'm surprised that you even had the time to talk with us today. Oh, yeah, of course. Arconnect is major. Well, so maybe for those of those of our listeners that aren't familiar with you yet, to just give a little context, maybe we can touch on some of your job titles. So you're an urban designer, correct? An urban designer. That's right. Yeah. I'm an urban designer. I'm trained as an architect. I have a AMARC from Columbia, GSAP. And I've worked at multiple scales from master planning neighborhoods to really interior kind of installation experimental projects with everything in between. And so now it looks like you're juggling a few different things. You're you're the principal at McEwen Studio. Could you tell us a little bit about what that's all about? What, what do you do there? Yeah, I founded McEwen Studio after Superfront, which was the nonprofit architecture gallery that I started in Brooklyn in 2007 and in Los Angeles in 2009, 2010. And so McEwen Studio, I've been a principal there for really the past couple of years doing projects that range from sort of self-initiated research projects to interior renovation projects. And here in Detroit, I'm working on a vacant house that's being repurposed um, where I'm working with artist collectives and then other folks here from kind of music and arts backgrounds to convert this abandoned house into a residency space and a performance space for different modes of performance, art and music. So is that what brought you to Detroit? Because you recently moved there from New York, right? That's right. Yeah, I moved here. I had been coming back and forth since last year. I started teaching at University of Michigan in the architecture school, first teaching urban design studio and now teaching architecture studios. And also, well, because I kind of work between different scales, I'm still between urban design and architecture. So both the project, which is called the House Opera Opera House. So that project was one of the kind of, you know, the projects that sparked my continuous work here. But I've been coming back and forth to Detroit, visiting, doing exhibits since 2000. 2011. So I've been coming for a few years. Ken, did you have something to say? Sure. Uh, Mitch, can you talk a little bit about your background, your BARC? I think it's in social sciences. Is that correct? My undergrad is a BA. Yeah. In social studies. 
which okay. it sounds like third grade, but it's, it's actually an honors major at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically kind of social science with a lot of theory wrapped around it. So I focused in economics, but I did a lot of lit theory, you know, doing kind of Foucault, Derrida, Marx, you know, and then sort of working my way through a kind of canon of, of social science undergrad. So how, how did you get to, I mean, everything you just said sounds natural transitions, but how did you get to architecture from that background and from Harvard to um, GSAP? Well, it, it's funny. I mean, it did feel kind of natural. There was a moment, I remember when I was a freshman in college, when I was really considering studying architecture undergrad, and Harvard had just gotten rid of its its undergrad architecture track, which um, Michael Hayes has been leading the kind of resuscitation of that program undergrad just for the past couple of years. So I did consider, and really it was, I mean, it sounds, you know, like totally cliche, but being in the Carpenter Center as an undergrad just blew my mind. And I didn't know who Le Corbusier was until I got to the campus. So I, I had no idea really that a building could do that. And I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., kind of surrounded by these amazing brutalist buildings, not really knowing also anything about architecture growing up. So the combination of the kind of social theory, reading Foucault and thinking about architecture that way, and then being in the Carpenter Center because I was doing painting, and that's where the, the painting studios are, that sort of pointed me towards architecture. But then, you know, not having the opportunity to actually study it sort of let me do other things for a few years before I came back in grad school. It, it seems as though, based on the little I know about you, because I'm one of the people that really pushed to get you on because I'm such a big fan of your work and what you've been doing. Oh, thank you. And especially your writing um, on even the small writings that I did read on HuffPo. The question I wanted to ask is that you have these tentacles kind of in various forms in various areas of architecture. How do you bring them together to create a practice? I mean, can you talk about the critical nature of your practice? Because you're in technology, you're dealing with social issues, you're dealing with very artistic, and you're across this very broad spectrum that just endlessly fascinates me and is kind of a model for me in terms of how I want to create a practice. Oh, wow. Thank you. So could you talk a little bit about that? Wow, thank you. I mean... Okay, that it's a real compliment. I mean, as far as my practice, coming to, the other draw for me to move from Brooklyn to Detroit is really that there are so many clients here. It's like everybody's a client. Like I go to the paint store and there's a woman who's working for this developer who just bought 3,000 houses. You know, I go down the street and there's a weird marijuana club that needs something rebuilt. You know, I mean, everywhere <laughs> I go, there are people who are thinking about the buildings that they're in or the neighborhood that they're in in a way that in New York, you would have to be around billionaires, you know, to, to kind of sort of engage with people who feel like they have that power and those resources in that space. So as far as like building my practice, Detroit is really kind of critical for me right now because it allows me to have clients, you know, as opposed to collaborators and in these kind of interventions and that kind of model. So that's as far as like just kind of the business or practice aspect. And as far as my work and the kind of tentacles, really, I sort of fell in love with architecture in grad school probably out of naivete, partially, because I had only worked briefly for an architecture firm in San Francisco, but but also just because it, it's such an amazing discipline. You know, we get to think about so many different things with so many different tools. And I think this moment in architecture is so incredible that, that we're sort of like 
reimagining the tools and, and the agency that we have in society and also what we're doing on our laptops. So there's just so much openness, I think, within the field. So I just try to test a lot of different things. I love that you say that, that we're at this moment of, of architects really experimenting with things and also then overlaid with the notion that in Detroit, everyone's a client, that there's this feeling that so much stuff is happening in Detroit that makes it very easy to get in and just get working, starting to do things. Right. And I wanted to ask more about that and how I, I was going to say, when the fact that you say everyone there is a client means that, that now, as soon as everyone hears this podcast, more and more architecture students are going to start saying, okay, I'm moving to Detroit because good, that's where I get yes. lots of clients. <laughs> so is that good? I mean, are you seeing, uh, you know, they're, they're calling Detroit the, the new Brooklyn. How would you compare those two in terms of their sudden rise? You know, Detroit has one of the hottest real estate markets in the country right now. You know, is it going to be pricing people out soon? Do you think, is there a downside to any of what's going on there? Well, you know, the question, there are a lot of questions there. And so I say yes and no. One, I'd say definitely no, Detroit is not becoming the next Brooklyn. And I mean, I'm Go guilty. Ahead. I'm guilty of referring to Detroit that way. It's sort of what brought me here initially was a an exhibit that I put together for Superfront called Detroit, a Brooklyn case study. So, I mean, the, you know, the parallel are reasons to make the parallel, but it, it falls short. You know, it's an oversimplification. I think you can make the parallel sort of neighborhood by neighborhood, but not at the scale of the whole city. And then also there are so many people here thinking about the questions of sort of equality and fairness and what democracy means in such an engaged way, partially because the citizens of Detroit have to. I mean, there's this kind of bizarre state politics of emergency management. But so I, I think that that makes these questions very palpable and real. You know, the questions of what does it mean when there's different professional groups kind of moving in and, and sort of staking out authority, that there's a citizenry that's that's ready to not let the professionals have all the answers, which which I love, you know. I love that too. That's awesome. It sounds great. Hi, Mitch, this is Amelia. I wanted to know a little bit more about the atmosphere in Detroit for not just for clients, you talk about like having it be so ripe for a possibility and having this real presence and knowledge that something could actually be done. But are there like of your peers or your colleagues, are there other people you found in Detroit that like you found a real kinship in who are in similar a similar boat as you and like figuring out how you are seeing Detroit at this time? I'm still meeting people here, you know, because I just moved here full time in September after being here with the visiting professorship last fall. So far, the people, I mean, the first friendships that I had here, the first people that I met were activists and people from the music world and people making music in Detroit. It's a city that's known for music. I mean, techno, the, the kind of history of techno and electronic music, it's still alive here. And it's got this amazing kind of overlap with hip hop in this kind of futuristic way. So I'm only just starting to meet people who are kind of makers of physical objects. And um, I've been meeting with some furniture makers who are incredibly astute and smart and have practices that I could learn a lot from. And also people who are more kind of like hacker builders that I think I will kind of more readily collaborate with myself. So, I mean, there's people who have been in Russell Industrial for a while, people who are just kind of using free spaces. So there's a lot of support here for, for makers you know, from different backgrounds. And that's something that I'm, I'm just starting to tap into. Oh, that's really cool. I'm asking particularly because from what I've seen of your previous work, there's a real effort and impressive lineup of collaborators like that even on your firm or as your firm, like you are the principal of a firm where 
the other partners in the firm are all of your other collaborators. Like people come on to be a part. It seems as if, and you can totally correct me, I might be wrong about this interpretation, but it seems like you become a partner as soon as you collaborate with Mitch on a project, which is so awesome. And those collaborators are anyone from, you know, visual artists to musicians to furniture makers, however. So I wanted to kind of take your experience in Detroit and see like how, if it's changed your idea of how collaboration works in in the very real business sense of running a firm? Well, I mean, that's something where, I don't know if you're referring to McEwen Studio or Ann Office. Oh, sorry, McEwen in particular. Right, right. Well, one of the things that I think about architects as far as what differentiates us from artists, because I work with artists so much, it's something that I'm always concerned about. And I think that there's a relationship to, to institutions that as much as we want to be out, kind of outside of the system or align ourselves with people who are critiquing the system, you know, we are professionals who work with the system, you know? So I, I'm very interested in the kind of questions of forming a practice. And, and one of the things that I've done since Superfront is really kind of take some of those collaborative tactics that I was developing there to put together ex exhibits and run programs and produce installations and move that towards an architectural practice. So McEwen Studio was the first iteration of that. And then one of the things I discovered in McEwen Studio, where I did have the opportunity to sort of work with a client as a collaborator, I designed the renovation of the Union Docks kind of film gallery in South Williamsburg, where the client is also construction, you know, kind of very experienced that way. So that kind of mode of the blurring of client and collaborator is something that I worked on you know, as with my projects in McEwen Studio. But now I'm more interested in exactly what you're asking about, sort of how do I work with other people who are designers at various scales? And that's where an office is a kind of model that I'm developing with other folks who are principals of independent studios that are kind of parallel to McEwen Studio. So that's Farzan Farzan, Sidwi Dad Lab, A Periodic Industries out of Los Angeles. And so we're building this kind of mode of practice that allows us to keep collaborating, but also keep doing our independent projects projects in, in a way that hopes to actually kind of continue institutionalizing what it is that we've already been doing. Wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> As a complete, like another way that you might interpret this kind of collaborative venture, I also saw that you've been working on a uh, Grasshopper plugin programming the, something called Primate. Could you talk a little bit about that and explain what that is? Yes, Primate is a plugin that I made to coordinate the Leap Motion controller, which is a device that's now built into some, I think, HP laptops to interface with Grasshopper, which is the algorithmic editor that everyone knows for Rhino. That plugin, it was a great exercise. It's out there. The public has access to it. A few hundred people have downloaded it. I haven't, I've only seen a couple people do really interesting things with it. And, you know, the, the plugin itself is kind of a, a victim of, of my academic work just because I haven't updated it recently. But it, it was the beginning of something that I'm, I'm coming back to in terms of other work on software that I'm really excited about. So one of the things that I think is, as I mentioned, kind of really exciting about this moment in architecture, I really think we're at a moment that's like as significant as the renaissance in many ways, in terms of not so much what we're making out there in the world, I think what we're making, you know, who knows, but I think in terms of like really reinventing our tools and discovering what our tools can do for our profession and our, our relationship to, to drawing and, and to, you know, what it even means to kind of claim authority over the built environment. So, so I really geek out on software for many, many different reasons. What do you think is contributing to this renaissance that you've mentioned? Is it, is it the internet 
or uh, technology, new forms of uh, collaborating and working? What, 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 what do you think? Yeah, it's all of that. It's all of that, you know? I mean, if you look at sort of um, industry kind of productivity, when, when computers came out and it, you know, kind of got democratized through business, you know, I'm talking about like the 80s and, and, and 90s, like every other industry saw their productivity go through the roof. And in architecture, the productivity fell. You know, and I think it's because we ended up doing work twice. You know, we would do the work by hand and then we would cat it up. And so I, I, we haven't even begun to see, I think, the, the change in something as simple as productivity. You know, we're just starting to see it. But as far as our ability to collaborate and, and really rethink like what a set of documents can mean and then how we communicate that out, I'm really excited about the urban scale and, and the relationship between, you know, data, social media, all, all of the things that the Internet does so well and that our tools are doing so well. The relationship between, you know, algorithms in the city. I feel like there's a lot to experiment with there and test out that is, is only just starting. So what are some of the things that you're most excited about that are happening maybe, you know, outside of the architecture, directly uh, outside of the architecture circle? Like, are there any new technology startups or anything that are contributing a lot to toward this direction that you're no i don't really follow the start i mean i did work in silicon valley briefly before architecture school but i don't really follow the startup world so much i look more at i mean you know democracy is suddenly like radical right i mean especially i'm here in detroit and there's emergency management but you know i was also working with occupy wall street when that was happening in, in new york city and when i see the kind of potential of collaboration and how people use technology. I think political activism, you know, is one of the places where you see the forefront of, of what people are doing when you have large groups of people that have to sort of think and work together and make decisions. And like, for example, the protests in Hong Kong, they were using like a Bluetooth app because the government kept shutting down the, the Wi-Fi and things like that. So, so I think, you know, when it comes to like spatial, like, what what we can do with kind of geolocatable data. Um, I mean, I'm I'm kind of ignorant about these things, but the kind of staying in the loop with with political activism and these kind of groups gives me a, a different a kind of makes me excited about some of these things. So, do you do you have any predictions of of where that might go? We've discussed on the podcast here not long ago about. The notion that with with GPS and, and with systems that can track where people are, suddenly location somehow becomes both less important than it had been and more important. And that the the spaces where people meet and do things like protests or make public opinion known, those spaces don't necessarily have to be public spaces now. And is that a detriment to our democracy to lose those public spaces? I don't know if you're familiar with Killian Riano's studio design agency doing studies of what actually is public space versus spaces that are private, privately owned public spaces. You mean the pops in like in the New York City pops, right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, do you have any predictions based on this? What, do you feel like we're going to see more of a return to um, public protests and physical space? Or do you feel like the protests are going to be staying more virtual? I mean, I think it'll... Sorry, I'm not phrasing my question very well no. at all, but um, basically, yeah. Do you feel like physical space is going to maintain its primacy as a, as a public space of democracy or... Yeah, I think it'll be both. I mean, here's what I think. Here's the closest thing I could come to a prediction, because I feel like once we start talking about software, all of a sudden, like I'm sounding like I'm some kind of guru and I'm not, right? But all I can say is just from having worked in city planning in New York City and then, you know, having participated in, in some of 
this kind of collective kind of work and actions. You know, if you look at zoning in America, you know, you have two big moments. You have around the 19-teens, 1920s, when zoning first starts, and then you have the 1960s. And I mean, the, the two cities that I've been looking at the zoning the most, of course, you know, New York and Detroit have very different relationships to the 1960s. But in many ways, the New York City, the what's the ULERP, the standard zoning process, universal land use review, it, it sort of emerged out of the sense that, you know, people in the streets or the, the civil rights movement and the kind of the way that people were demanding a different um, sort of process for defining the city that needed um, some kind of planning practice, right, to sort of honor this. Um, and so, of course, talking about the, the kind of slum removal, slum clearance, and then the, you know, the, the kind of need to right those wrongs. And so in many ways, in here in Detroit, a lot of the zoning is a kind of response to the riots of 1967. You see that years, 1967, throughout the Detroit zoning. And so um, in many ways, I think the kinds of kind of between a hope and a prediction that the kinds of political public presence that, you know, whether it's activism, organizing marches or, or just people bike riding in a conscious way or whatever, but that, that kind of embodied presence in the city that does imagine a kind of political effect that I think the Internet has a serious relationship to and will continue to have a serious relationship to. I think we're in a time where we're going to have another sort of notion of planning or of kind of city making around that, that there will be effects on the built environment. And I don't know how that will play out, but I think technology has to be a part of it. Kind of collective experience of the city has to be a part of it. Great. Great. I totally agree. And it is an interesting time that um, these things are changing very quickly. So Ken? Yeah, Mitch, um, along the lines of what I was just, uh, Donna was just tweeting back and forth today with um, with someone uh, from Forbes about Kimmelman's uh, critique of David Ajay's public housing project. Do you see more architects finding an avenue kind of in that area where they can create interesting designs for public housing? I mean, do you see anything happening in that area? I mean, I think one of the odd things about, well, the, a couple of ways I, have, I, I can respond to that. One is I really appreciate Reinhold Martin's kind of rhetoric around public housing. Like, if you remember from the politics of parametricism, this whole really awkward conversation with Patrick Schumacher or you know other instances, Reinhold Martin often brings up the fact that we cannot talk about public housing, right? That it's somehow, it's been almost like a taboo. It's been sort of erased as a possibility within our discipline. So yeah, I think there's a difference between affordable housing and public housing. And it would be wonderful if we even, you know, could kind of engage with that as a discipline. Um, but with sort of within the question of affordability, one of the things that I find really exciting about this moment is, you know, it's like, land can be so expensive that it's sort of, you know, I mean, we see this in, in New York City so often that the land is so expensive that even for market rate housing that sells at $1,000 a square foot, it, the, the actual build out can look so cheap. So, you know, I, I think in a way, both luxury and affordability are asking the same questions. You know, it's like, how can we design in a way that, that sort of gives honor to the value that we hope is there, whether it's the value in the ground in New York City or, or the, the social value? 
so I, I think, you know, we're still sort of seeing the beginning of, of what I hope is this like amazing productivity that we'll be able to get out of the tools that we have, whether it's robotics, new materials, you know, new design methods, that kind of thing. So Mitch, you're involved in everything from making like wearable furniture to designing the entire city of Detroit. What's your work schedule like? I mean, how do you ever sleep? Do you, you know, what's, uh, <laughs> we, we can't say, we can't say on a podcast that I'm involved in designing the entire city of Detroit. That's like <laughs> highly problematic. <laughs> I won't have I won't have any friends here. <laughs> no, no, it's um, fine. Nobody takes anything we say seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no, my work schedule. I mean, I work on things that interest me. You know, so I really don't draw much of a line, and and especially because I'm I'm often collaborating with people in other disciplines. So sometimes I'll collaborate on something that I think is an ideas project and then it'll turn into a proposal for something or somebody's my friend and then they turn into a client and I don't know when that happened. So in my schedule, I don't think is that different from anybody else. I, I sleep like probably seven hours. Oh, nice. <laughs> and you sleep in a Mies van der Rohe building. So you're... A, a Mies, yes, exactly. Yeah, in the Lafayette Tower. Is that Lafayette Tower, is that similar to the Colonnade in Newark? The promenade and colonnade in Newark, his other buildings? You know what? I haven't been to the Newark building, but I think it is fairly similar. Okay. I would love to see the drawings. Oh, okay. I think I was reading this today on one of your pieces about bureaucrats and urban plan or urbanism and related to Detroit. Was it a point that I think you were making in there about how austerity could actually be good because it gives you another constraint to work with and to create something very interesting? Was, was I reading that today? Might have been an old piece. Which article? It was on HuffPo. I think I was... Is it a HuffPo? Yeah, it was a HuffPo piece. Okay. If it's the Huffington Post one, I think it's from 2012, maybe. I was talking about... 2012 or 2013. Yeah, I think that's the one. It was like right when emergency management was, was starting, right. you know, to be kind of outlined by the by the state of Michigan. And that was no... No, I wasn't talking about austerity, I don't think. It was more the way that the, the kind of financial imagination of the city can be... Oh, okay. No, there's, there was two things I was saying. One, that the finances were fake, right? Because there was a woman who was running for mayor who had come from a background in the city of being a CPA, and she put together a completely different set of numbers that no one was really talking about outside of Detroit. So that was one just kind of fact-finding point. But I think my point, um, as far as the discipline, as far as thinking about what we can do as architects, was about images and about how the kind of image of the city as as kind of ruined and desolate was part of what enabled this very kind of oversimplified version of the financial story to, to receive so much kind of truth, this kind of aura of truth, without being questioned by any of the national media. Mitch, I was hoping that you could uh, give us an update on one of the more intriguing posts that I saw on your blog recently, which was about a, a storefront space in Manhattan that your office and office uh, was able to secure for a $1 lease. Mm -hmm. So what's happened with that? We'll provide a link to that post in our show notes, but maybe you could provide us with an update. Great, thanks. No, that that was great. It was only one month. That was the kind of, you know, the, the trick is that it was $1 a month for this great location between the Lower East Side and Chinatown, but we had the space only for a month. In that time, it was really, really productive because we were able to write a business plan which is almost done. 
um, and that we're deciding if we're going to kind of make it public, like a kind of open source approach to starting a practice type thing. And we were able to kind of redesign the space that we were in for the purpose of an installation that happened in September with How Do You Say Yem and African, the, the arts collective. So and that got picked up. It was one of the top shows, according to Freeze of 2014 and all these other things. So we, we were able to achieve those two things in, in just a month being there. Wow. That's great. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. That was P Gallery. P Gallery is excellent. And what is what's going on there now? Was it did it they continue leasing it out for a dollar to other people, or was that just a one month thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was something that I just kind of finagled. Really, it's it's usually a, a gallery, you know, a kind of a hot downtown Manhattan gallery. So the one dollar lease was something that I finagled with them. Ah. Does that feel? Uh, substantively so much different as operating a practice out of Detroit? Or have you settled the practice uh, space out of Detroit yet? $1 a month is pretty much the uh, the going right in Detroit, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I wish. I'm actually still looking for office space here. No, it is different, but it's related. I mean, here in Detroit, I'm looking for office space. And an office is located basically between three cities, New York, Detroit, and L.A., and one of the other partners in an office is between Detroit and New York. And so in the L.A. partner has also been here for part of the year. So we kind of hop between each other's cities. But we're still, I mean, the business plan at this point is one of these kind of concrete documents that we're using to also kind of suss out in our kind of relationship to physical space. Yeah, because when you're already scattered across the country, you start to even question maybe whether that's necessary, <laughs> whether you need a, a full physical place to call home while you can still collaborate across whatever channels you choose to. Right. Or which city it will be in. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, I don't think it's going to be L.A., so it's going to be New York or Detroit. And we're, we're going back on that decision right now, back and forth. I mean, so besides writing for the blog on Arconnect and Huffington Post, what role does writing play in your practice? Yeah, I like that question. I'm still, I'm always trying to figure that out. Sometimes I think the the questions that lead to a design are something that deserve to be written down, you know, kind of parallel to, to what I'm designing. And, and then also writing can be a way of, of reaching out, you know, to people who may not already be involved in something you know, so that people want to get involved or give me feedback. It, it's a way of, of kind of making something public. So, and that's something that in a way, galleries function similarly for me, you know, where it's a mode of making something public that may be in process, or it may be just a kind of thought or just a kind of thought experiment. Um, and then sometimes my writing is more clearly making an argument, staking out a position on something. And you're teaching right now as well? You, you mentioned that you're uh, teaching a studio, architecture studio? Yeah, I taught a studio last semester that was cited in Detroit, which was um, really exciting because I, I got to really delve into research that on my own would have taken much longer. And so we were looking at water, which has been a big issue here because there have been these emergency management shutoffs where the entire city is surrounded by the Great Lakes. It's got something like a fifth of the world's fresh water, you know, in terms of the Great Lakes itself. And, and yet the kind of population, the citizenry has had, you know, its water shut off if bills are a year behind or something. So we were, we were really looking at kind of alternative infrastructure models in the studio. And this coming semester, 
I'll be teaching related to what I mentioned before, this kind of question of the urban scale, you know, these kind of new methods and new tools that we have. I'll be teaching urban planners to work with algorithms and work with drawing in different ways. And then in the summer, I'm teaching a travel studio to Brazil, going to Rio de Janeiro. Um, to kind of continue some of this infrastructural, um, you know, investigation and then also look at relationship between public space and, and housing in terms of the how the city is kind of gearing up for the Olympics, looking at alternatives to this sort of conventional kind of Olympic model. Again, you're talking about the huge scale of an Olympic uh, installation. And then I know you're also um, talking about little things like sidewalks and, and wearable tables. So it's mm-hmm. <laughs> your scale is just awesome. And I love that you have your finger in all those different areas. It's great. Thank you. So two quick things. You know, in a lot of the writings is on HuffPo, it really in a way doesn't have a lot to do with architecture. It has to do a lot with what's going on and in, in culturally, politically, the tensions that exist between the police and Black Americans and just the public in general. And now we're seeing this undisclosed or this invisible strike by the police in New York City. And it seems to be kind of, there's this thing happening now, it just happened in Minneapolis, where now the police have been, they've put us on notice. Watch your words. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's this interesting thing happening between the police department and just the people in general. Now it's now it's not even about race. It's just about you watch your words. And now we have to be cognizant of criticizing the police department or else they'll start backing away from doing what they're paid to do. Do you see architecture or urbanism playing a role in how we deal with these situations? And I ask that because one of the posts that was just up on Arconnect was talking about public transportation in New York City and who it actually benefits. And I've seen that here in Minneapolis as well, where, you know, the state highways kind of bisect communities of color. Public transit doesn't work for communities of color. It just really it just disadvantages people who actually could use the services the most. It actually kind of hangs in the other direction and, and gives it to the people who actually probably don't need it as much. Do you see architecture, urbanism having kind of a, a stake in kind of you know, changing these dynamics? Well, yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, as far as, you know, what I've been writing on Huffington Post, one of the things is the kind of trilogy that I started after the, the homicide of Trayvon, Trayvon Martin. And really, you know, then I have followed up since the protests in Ferguson. And in a way, what I'm hoping to do is kind of draw a bridge between the the thinking of the built environment and then our thinking of the politics and the social reality within that built environment. And I think in a way, it's similar to the the way that our discipline had to stretch in thinking about environment in a larger sense, you know, thinking about ecosystems and the life cycle of materials and that kind of thing. You know, now that's been incorporated and digested into the field somewhat because it's been digested in, in a kind of corporate world and other kind of political frames. But I think, you know, our discipline is special because we have such a close relationship to cities. You know, one of the things about the, the history of this country is that, you know, this country has a very 
very conflicted relationship to its cities. You know, it goes back to Jefferson and Hamilton's debates. So, so there's a sense in which this, this country always wants to imagine it, itself as this kind of this rural place or this suburban place. And then sometimes it achieves that imagination and sometimes it doesn't, you know, but, but our field has such a strong relationship to cities that I, I think we really can be leaders in sort of pointing to some of the questions and the frictions and the tensions that happen within our cities. And, you know, so like some of the simple things that I've done related to that storefront for art and architecture in New York asked me to write a letter to the mayor last year. And I wrote about, because he's talked so much about housing, I wrote about um, NYCHA and I was looking at the public spaces, the landscaping of NYCHA, and one of the the kind of, um, you know, if I had a design intervention in the letter, it was simply to take down the black fences that surround all of that green. You know, it's a tower and a park typology, and it's it could be an actual park, and, and the green could be accessible, and those fences coming down could start to kind of signal that change. And so those kind of, you know, that kind of, even something to go back to this, the, the thing about scale and kind of shifting scales. I think part of the legibility of the built environment, when we start to actually kind of look at its effects on a kind of embodied citizenry, you know, the relationship between the police being able to shut down a street or frisk people before they're going into the subway or, you know, a, a fence that kind of starts to criminalize all of the activity that happens within an open space. I mean, we have to be able to read all of that. You know, I think I think our field can really be important in sort of providing ways of even just reading, you know, the way the city already operates. Mitch, I have one last question for you. Um, the and this is kind of really off topic, but, you know, right now everybody's getting their grad applications together for, for grad school. OK, do you got any advice for any of these uh, these lonely souls <laughs> out there for <laughs> to get them through the uh that process, you got anything to tell the, the masses out there? Well, look at Michigan, University of Michigan, Talman College. <laughs> no, I mean, here, let's see. I mean, I could either, you know, speak from where I am now, where I'm teaching or where I was when I was applying to grad school. But either way, I think, you know, look at the work that's happening at the school in terms of what you're seeing online and, you know, what's being published, but also go to the school, you know, but the reality is it's hard to really understand studio culture or get a sense of it till you're there. So a lot of it is if people already know someone in architecture school, they can ask and find that out. But otherwise, you know, you just kind of have to get your hands dirty. I think dig around on the Internet and also just kind of show up and pretend that you belong there as much as you can. When did you teach at NJIT? I taught at NJIT last year and okay. before I was in Germany. So that would okay. have been 2012 and also 2011. Okay. I, I adjuncted there teaching under, that was the first time I taught undergrads. It was, it was an amazing place to, to kind of teach undergrads. Did you have any experience with Don Wall when you were there? Yeah. What, what is, is <laughs> oh my goodness Enough, sir. <laughs> no i feel like uh, i'm gonna be okay. quizzed on a public record no 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 <laughs> well we can leave it at that mitch we really appreciate you uh, taking the time and talking with us and we would love to have you back sometime to talk about you know one topic in particular now that we've jumped around trying to capture your your career and and all the different projects that you've been working on we're all big fans 
And, uh, and we'd love to talk to you again soon. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Our connect has been, you know, such an important place online for me. So I really appreciate it. And well, I'm, I'm a fan of what you guys do. Well, that's so great to hear. All right. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you, Mitch. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mitch. Nice talking to you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So that was a nice introduction to Mitch. You know, a lot of people have been following her blog on Archonnect and a lot of people just in the architecture industry have been following her work as an urban designer and an activist and a gallerist and a practitioner and an educator. It's, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to having her back just to talk about some, some, uh, topics in, uh, in more depth. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just amazed doing any type of trying to get a little a feel for her for her work before we talked to her, and I was just amazed at how at the sheer scope of it. I was like, "There's no way to pare this person down." (laughs) So it'll be great to uh, to have her back when we have like the ability to to really hone in on one topic. Well, that's what was so interesting about you know we were talking before about the um, biennial in uh, Chicago is to think about her and Jimenez, and you know she's like doing so much. And it seems to be on a leading edge of where the future of the profession is going. She seems like just a natural fit to be part of that process. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, like I said, I said in my post that I'm a bit of a fanboy, so... (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I think that's a perfect description. I think she really is a, a great representative of the future direction of architectural practice. Absolutely. Well, so I think we're going to change gears entirely now and talk to uh, Brian. I actually spoke with him the other day, Brian Newman, our lawyer, about this week's topic is about uh, disputes and different ways to resolve legal disputes. Uh, this is something that comes up a lot in our discussion forum. You know, like I never got payment from this guy. I didn't get paid by my boss. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's a it's a pretty common yeah. uh, topic, and not too many people know what to do. And there's a lot of options that Brian has shared with us. So let's listen to that. So I'm here again with Brian Newman, our resident lawyer on the podcast. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing great. Paul, great to be back. So this week, we're going to talk about disputes and resolutions. So there's a, a lot of different types of disputes that can happen in, in architecture. A lot of them are often brought up in our discussion forum. One of the most common disputes being lack of payment, either by an employer not paying an employee or a client not paying an architect. So I was thinking maybe we could talk about ways to resolve disputes. So say, for example, a person hires an architect to design a house for them. Uh, This is a pretty typical problem. The architect then designs the house, gives the designs to the client for review, and the client decides to just stop the project and not go ahead with the designs. And sometimes the client feels that since the designs are not going to be used, they don't need to pay. Obviously, the architect sees it a different way. So what kind of options does the architect have? So there's a range of options, ranging from the very, very cheap and very casual to to very formal and and much more expensive. And so starting with the most easy, most casual option, uh, the architect can simply call up the client and say, hey, you know, you need to pay me. The work was done. Uh, Slightly more formal would be to write a letter, a letter asking for payment or demanding payment, and essentially just engaging in a dialogue. And this is something people often don't expect you know, me as a lawyer to suggest a non-legal option, but this is often, you know, a very effective way of, of getting uh, smaller disputes resolved and not having to um, incur the legal expense of hiring an attorney and going through the whole legal process. So 
I, I would suggest, you know, at, at the outset, call the client, get a sense of what the, uh, you know, the, the client's feelings are as to why they don't have to pay, make your position known as to why uh, you do have to pay and uh, see if you can work out a compromise, you know, not, not to suggest the architect cut his or her fee, but it may be worth it just to, uh, you know, small discount just to get it resolved, maybe suggest a payment plan. If it looks like that first step doesn't work, you might escalate it to a slightly more formal step, send a letter explaining, you know, as you know, we entered into this agreement, you know, I designed your your house, this is the work I did, this is when it was completed, and as you previously agreed, this was the payment that you owe me and I expect to be paid. So would this be a letter that would be prepared by a lawyer or by the actual uh, person fighting the dispute? Well, I would start maybe, especially for smaller disputes, start by sending your own letter. Uh-huh. You start with that. If that doesn't work, you know, that's sort of the, the second level after just the informal conversation, then you might want to get a lawyer friend of yours involved, either a friend or a referral, just to start by sending a letter. And I almost always, very few exceptions, will start by sending a letter just because it, from the client's point of view, my client's point of view, it's a much more cost-effective option than running to court, incurring all those fees, preparing the lawsuit, paying the filing fees. Just a simple letter saying, I represent you know, Paul Petrunia. Mr. Petrunia is an architect. He was hired by you to design this residence. Here's the work that he completed it. Here's the fee that you agreed to pay him. He wasn't paid. And so, therefore, you know, please remit payment within, give him a reasonable amount of time, two weeks, you know, three weeks, 10 days. And if and you put something at the end, sort of the carrot and the stick, say if payment isn't received by that day, we'll have no other option other than to resort to the legal process. And I would say at least in maybe 20, 20% of my cases, just uh, sending that letter results in either a payment right away, which is the best, or at least a dialogue gets the parties talking. You know, either the uh, the person I sent the letter to or their lawyer will call me, we'll go engage in a dialogue about it and it will result in, uh, you know, the dispute being resolved outside so, of court. So it's usually in everybody's best interest to avoid turning it into a, uh, a legal dispute. So then if the, if, if there's no response from the letter, what's the next step? So the next step somewhat depends on how much money is in question. If it's at under $10,000, the next step would be to file essentially a small claims action. And small claims, which they have in all 50 states. Uh, in California, the threshold is 10000 Other states, it might be slightly more or slightly less. It's a very expedited process where you essentially just uh, fill out a form explaining what the dispute is, pay a filing fee, which is usually a couple hundred bucks, uh, send by certified mail or personal delivery, copy of your complaint to the other party, the person you're suing, and then you get a court date and you and the other person actually show up in court in front of a commissioner, which is not quite a judge, kind of like a junior judge, and present your case, kind of like what you might see on, on what used to be called the people's court, now maybe Judge Judy. It's just a judge up there. There's no jury. Uh, you stand at a lectern. You present your case. Uh, you show any documents you might have, uh, any emails, any proof that the work was done. The other side has an opportunity to present their case. And in two or three weeks, you get, uh, which is essentially a letter from the uh, from the court saying, you know, judgments issued in favor of either you or in favor of the other party. And again, it's it's uh, only for smaller disputes. And how much does that usually cost? Well, you don't you don't hire an attorney for uh, for small claims courts. So you really represent yourself. Represent yourself. That's exactly right. So the fees are going to be just the filing fees, which usually is in the the low hundreds, and then whatever time and expense it takes to, to essentially to get to the uh, you know the hearing. But it's usually something I'd say under uh, under a thousand dollars in fees. Usually well under that. So if the dispute is a relatively small amount, small claims is a good solution. Any other options for small amounts? Yeah. For usually a slightly larger dispute, one thing you might try is mediation. And mediation is something uh, you see a lot in the divorce context. You see it uh, in the employment context a lot. 
You do see it in the architecture context as well. It's essentially, two people have a dispute. They decide that rather than jumping right into court, we're actually going to sit down with a neutral third party who's called a mediator and see if we can reach a resolution. And uh, usually the way that works, you go to a conference room, uh, the mediator sits there, he talks to both parties together uh, with attorneys present or without attorneys, if there are no attorneys, then he splits them up into separate rooms. He talks to one party, he talks to the other party. And the goal is essentially to bring the parties together to try to reach a resolution. The downside of it is it's not binding. So you know, if you feel like you have a great case, uh, your opponent feels like he has a great case, you know, you can both sort of stand your ground and nothing happens. So it sounds like mediation is good for uh, a situation where both parties are wanting to cooperate and come up with a solution, but maybe there's a little too, too much emotion to, uh, to make that decision without some kind of external moderator. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of uh, court processes, mediation is mandatory anyway. So if you, if you end up in court, at least in, here in Los Angeles, for example, if you file a lawsuit, the judge is actually going to order you to try to mediate the case. The reason being they're trying to take some of the pressure off the court system by trying to resolve matters informally. So you may have to mediate whether you like it or not. And if you file a lawsuit, you probably will have to mediate. Is mediation usually effective? I'd say maybe 20, 25% of the time. Okay. So some cases more, some cases less. It really depends. Um, in, in a case where both people are very emotional, it tends to be, at least in my experience, maybe a little less effective because both people are really emotionally invested in their position being right. In a case between two business people where it's just about money, it's usually a lot more effective because they don't have that uh, emotional need to be right or to vindicate themselves. It's just a question of, all right, here's the dispute. And what's a fair resolution? Let's get down to the brass tacks of actually coming up with the number. Okay. So if mediation does not work or if it's not a, a viable option for the dispute, what else? Well, so the, the next two steps, the more escalated steps, would be to actually file a lawsuit in a superior court uh, here in California, different names in different uh, parts of the country. California, uh, it's usually $25,000 and above uh, superior court, and that would involve significantly more fees, uh, most likely because you'd have to hire an attorney. You actually can represent yourself if you're an individual. If you're a company, you can't represent yourself. You have to hire an attorney, and they have to pay a filing fee, which is about 400 bucks, and then you have to go through what is often a lengthy process of actually getting to a, a jury. I mean, we're looking at, at least in California, you're looking at probably about 18 months before you actually get your case heard before a jury. I and mean, during that time, you know, the legal fees could be significant. There could be depositions or written discovery, motion practices, depending on, on how much uh, both you and the other attorney or the other party want to push the issue. It could be either you know, somewhat efficient or, or very expensive. But eventually the way the process ends is you either... Well, three ways it could end. Either you reach a settlement, which is how most cases end. Uh, you file a motion and the judge grants judgment in favor of one party or the other. It's called a motion for summary judgment or least likely outcome. But the one you're probably most familiar with your listeners are is you actually go to a trial and then 12 people from the community, a jury comes, they hear the evidence, uh, they hear all the facts, they go back into the jury room, they make a decision, they render judgment for one party or the other. Now, the, the problem with that is by the time you get to that case, there to that point in the case, you've spent tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees. So you really have to, at the outset of the case, make a decision. You know, how much is this case worth? And uh, what am I willing to invest in it? And what's, what's sort of the end game? You don't want to go into it haphazardly just because you're mad and spend, say, 50,000 legal fees fighting about you know, a $30,000 architecture commission. But if you're 100% positive that you have a case on, on your side, you, you can request that the your the person you're you're fighting in court pays your legal fees is that right 
You can. There, there are some restrictions on it. And this, this gets to an important point you raise, the importance of having a written contract. Okay. In California, you can have an, an oral contract. You can have a written contract. In a written contract, you can include what's called an attorney's fees clause. It essentially says, if we get into a fight and there's a lawsuit, the losing party is going to pay all the attorney's fees for the winning party. But that's something that has to be in the contract, has to be signed and agreed to by all parties. If it's in there, it can be a very effective tool, both in terms of resolving cases early, because the party who thinks he's going to lose is not going to want to fight over it. He's going to have to pay the other party's legal fees. Or if the case can't be resolved, if you actually go the whole distance, it, it can really be a, a real windfall for the party who's victorious and a, a real um, disaster for the party who's not. I mean, to give you an example, in a case I recently had, we won the case, there was an attorney's fees clause in the contract. And just a couple of weeks ago, we filed a motion for attorney's fees, $488,000 in fees. So this is in addition to, wow. we won the case, which was about a $3 million case. You know, judgment uh, was for us. The other party's going to have to pay their legal fees, which are probably close to half a million, if not more. And in all likelihood, it's going to have to pay our legal fees as well. Wow. So it's a, it can be a powerful tool, but again, it's something you specifically need to have in your contract in order for a judge to consider it. Okay, so the options we're looking at so far is um, coming up with a mutual agreement before getting into any kind of legal uh, action, small claims, mediation, and full-on law, Supreme Court case. Any other options? Yeah, another option definitely going to want to consider is arbitration. Arbitration is something, again, both parties would need to agree to, would need to be in the contract, and the language would say something to the effect of, uh, in the event there's a dispute between the parties, the parties agree to resolve it by way of binding arbitration. Uh, you can actually choose the uh, the organization to arbitrate it. Some of the more popular ones, JAMS, J-A-M-S, ADR Services, which uh, stands for Alternative Dispute Resolution. Essentially what arbitration is, it's not what you've seen on TV in terms of uh, you know, a judge and a jury and a bailiff in a courtroom. Really takes place in a, in a conference room, usually in a skyscraper somewhere. It's an arbitrator, which is typically a retired judge, uh, sometimes a lawyer who's decided to become an arbitrator, but but more and more frequently a retired judge actually sits there in a conference room. Both parties show up and uh, put on their case. Uh, similar, but not exactly like court in the sense that it's much faster than taking a case to court. There is no jury. It's decided by one person, the arbitrator. Uh, the typical rules of evidence are much more relaxed. And the rules of discovery uh, are much more limited than they are in court, meaning there aren't going to be uh, depositions. There's probably not going to be much by way of discovery. Essentially, you just sign up for arbitration. Both parties uh, pay a fee for it. Uh, you exchange documents. They set a date for the hearing. You choose an arbitrator, either mutually choose an arbitrator or the arbitration body will choose one at random for you. Uh, and you show up, you put on your case, and usually two weeks later, you get a decision. So uh, the benefit is it's, it's a much more streamlined process, much faster usually than going to court. It's private in the sense that if you do something in court, you know, if it's a high profile case, it's open to the public. Arbitration is totally private. And it's usually something where, uh, you know, you, you may get a much better decision from a, an informed uh, judge, a retired judge serving as an arbitrator than you would from 12 random people in the community. So it sounds like it's something in between mediation and a formal court battle in that it's it has a relatively casual environment with a more formal decision at the end, more formal than mediation, which is... Uh, That's right. So mediation is non-binding, which means the mediator can, can cajole us, can encourage us to settle, but at the end of the day, we can both walk out. Arbitration is, is binding, which basically means that whatever the arbitrator decides, with very, very limited exceptions, 
is going to be uh, the decision. You're going to get an enforceable judgment. You can lose an arbitration. And once you lose, you have very limited rights of appeal, unlike in a, in a court proceeding where if you lose a trial, you can go to the court of appeal. You can try going to the Supreme Court. Arbitration, when it's done, is done. So it sounds like the importance of getting all of your, um, protecting yourself with a contract is probably a very important part of this whole process in order to come to a, come to a conclusion that works. Uh, it's, it's absolutely critical. So I think, well, what typically happens is uh, you know, when people are, are getting along, when everything is going well, the contract may not seem necessary. It may be fine to have a handshake agreement. Oh, it seems like we're friends. This is all going to work out fine. The contract really becomes necessary when things aren't going well. Suddenly, and this happens almost without fail in every case, you know, when, when things fall apart uh, because there's a disagreement about payment or the scope of the services or, or how the services were completed, um, suddenly the party's memories of what, what was agreed to are, are totally different. The architect may say, well, I agreed to do X, Y, and Z. And the client may say, no, 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 you agreed to do three other things. And I agreed to pay you this much when this was completed. And the architect may say, no, no, you agreed to pay me this much. So what the contract does is it lends uh, an air of certainty to it. This is what we're agreeing to. This is when it's going to be completed. This is what each party's obligations are. Uh, so, so an oral contract, to be clear, can be enforceable and usually is enforceable in California, but there's a real question as to what the contract is. And, and by putting it into writing, you eliminate that uncertainty. Well, this sounds like a good uh, topic for next week. Do you want to join us next week to talk about some of the most important things to include in a contract? I do. Look forward to it. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming and uh, talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks, Paul. It's good. I, I love how he sort of goes from um, very simply from here's the easiest thing to start with, and then you move all the way up to the fifty, you know, the two hundred fifty or quarter million dollar legal fees yeah. zone. Like he really graduated through all of your options. I thought it was it was good. Yeah. And just hearing how long it takes for some of these things to happen, like about like oh you won't you might even not even see this case come to court for another eighteen months. I just think yeah. like people are willing to slog through so much stuff. And if they know about the earlier options, it sounds like a lot of things would be more easily resolved. Right. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting how much emotion and pride gets involved in, in these cases. Mm, yes. You know, yeah. it's uh, yeah. so often it's really easy to see what the solution is and see what is fair and what's not fair, but people's emotions and pride get, gets in the way most of the time. And it becomes so difficult to, to reach a, an agreement. It's like divorce. It really is. It's it like, is. It is like it, going through the process. It is. Yeah. You know, I have, I still have architects that owe me money from about 20 plus years ago before I even went to architecture God. school. They don't owe me a lot, but it, you know, it was always the principle of the, the matter that, you know, even when I found myself in a situation, you know, recently that happened and then a few years ago, that same kind of thing happened where an architect, I had heard um, from somebody in the office that uh, the check that they, this person was paid bounced and I was done. As soon as I heard that, I was done. I was, you know, once you're married, you have loans, you have mortgage or you have rent to pay, you know, there's the game stopped playing and you don't have, you don't give anybody any wiggle room. So it's nice to hear how these things are dealt with. And at least somebody's dealing with it professionally. Yeah. Lawyers. That's what we need them for. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We all have love, hate relationships with lawyers. And if we don't, if we don't yet, you will one day. You will one day. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's about time to wrap this show up. Anybody have any endorsements? Uh, I was so pleased with how the discussion with Mitch went today. Um, I wanted to point out in the forums, there's actually a very good discussion called An End to Professionalism, started by Midlander. And he leads to a couple of articles to read about professionalism. And uh, it's been a really interesting and good, solid discussion so far. I think that what Mitch is proposing and what I have 
said many times in both pro practice class and in this talk that I'm giving that, um, you know, the nature of architectural practice is changing very quickly and being nimble and able to collaborate and able to do a lot of, wear a lot of different hats and do different things is, um, seems to me more and more the way that professionalism is going. So, um, I, I, I would point towards that thread and it's been a very nice discussion so far. No snarkiness and no, uh, no people being nasty. So what? Well, that's good. We're acting professionally in that thread. Give me time. But, yeah. <laughs> Ken, do you have any endorsements? Um, no, I just I just saw the piece. Um, I've been really really busy lately, so the the one piece that kind of caught me was the was the news piece about Cappadocia and the uh, the underground city that they found prior to um, the construction of a new housing development in the same area I was just in. So. That one was kind of, it was fun. In Turkey, right. You just traveled to Turkey. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that was interesting to see that, and, you know, just to reminisce about the, um, being there. So it makes me want to go back. <laughs> How about you, Amelia? Well, I have a very holiday specific endorsement. I would like to heavily endorse the Copenhagen airport. It's an awesome airport. Um, <laughs> I've it? been in a lot of airports recently. I would like to retroactively, if I've ever endorsed United Airlines, I would like to unendorse them. Um, <laughs> Why would you have ever endorsed them in the first place? I don't know. Maybe in a moment of weakness, free flyer miles or something. But I traveled to Denmark for the vacation and I was spent a lot of time in airports. And I've just gotten really interested in the environmental design of airports and wayfinding in particular with getting people from A to B without any common language and how you communicate that. And Copenhagen Airport, just really good at it. Very efficient international airport, completely, completely seamless, much to be contrasted with even the uh, very expensive and recently reopened international airport terminal at Los Angeles International Airport, the Tom Bradley, which is a little bit nasty to go through. So my my full-hearted endorsement to the efficiency and legibility of Copenhagen Airport. Well, let's all fly to Copenhagen. Yes. <laughs> Great. We'll be doing the podcast from there, from now on. Oh, sounds good. <laughs> Not bad. Well, okay. I have a couple endorsements. Uh, one's actually uh, more of a uh, observation. First of all, we've been having, since so far 2015, we have had a ridiculous amount of jobs posted on, on Arconnect. There mm. is a ton of work out there. And interestingly, I've also noticed so many comments on the site about people thinking that it's really hard to find a job right now. So I think that's, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to get that out there, that there are a lot, a lot of firms looking to hire. So for those of you out there that, that are looking for a job, keep your chin up and start applying <laughs> because the chances are, are better than ever that, that you'll find that job. And my second, my second uh, endorsement is something not related to architecture really at all, but uh, it is the, uh, the series Black Mirror on Netflix, which I binge watched over the holidays. It's amazing. <laughs> BBC show that came out, uh, I think it originally came out in 2011. It's kind of like a Twilight Zone series meets like near future kind of critical uh, look at the way that current society uses technology. Lots of really great um, kind of architectural and product design forecasting in it. Um, I, Nicholas Carodi in our office is actually, I think, working on a piece talking about the uh, talking about the series. But anybody out there that, that has Netflix, highly recommend checking that out. I'm super excited. That's the top on my list. Yeah. And, and if you have access to the Christmas special that, that actually came <laughs> out two weeks before Christmas, only in London, but you know, there's ways of finding it. It's, it's not officially 
The Christmas special starring John Hamm. It's a two-hour, six-part episode. It is amazing. It's better than any of the other episodes. So good. So anyways, that's it. Awesome. Well, it's uh, it's, it's nice to be back after the holidays. It is. And uh, thank you to all of my co-hosts for uh, spending the time to uh, return to the podcast. Looking forward to a lot of really good episodes. You can follow Arconnect on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, RSS, all the typical ways. Uh, if you have any comments, suggestions, or a legal question for Brian, hit us up on Twitter with hashtag Arconnect Sessions, or you can send us an email to connect at Arconnect.com. You can even give us a call on our hotline at 213-784-7421 and leave a message up to three minutes. Uh, if we pick your, your message, we might play it on the air and uh, address, address your, your question or comment or whatever you have to share with us. So anyways, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a conversation with Stephen Ehrlich. And uh, thanks, guys. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.